0: Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antinomocósica 20 valente. vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, lláma al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar
1: 20. Cuando But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.
2: Hey, everyone. So I may have mentioned this on social media, but I didn't mention this on the podcast. But I'm hosting a new show on Spotify Greenroom called True Crime Convo's Every Tuesday, starting at 6 p.m. Central. All you have to do is go to the App Store, search for Spotify Green Room, and then follow me at Laney Hobbs. Feel free to chat with me about any type of true crime. So, I want to play the audio from this week's episode that I did, and hopefully, you guys will join me next week. Okay, not sure what happened there, but we are back again (laughs) for the second time. We are here with True Crime Convos with Lainey. Sorry about previous, don't know what happened, but we are here excited to talk about some true crime and what that means and looks like on the Spotify Green Room app. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you're not on the app or you're listening to this on the podcast feed later. So, welcome to True Crime Convos. Every Tuesday, I, Lainey, a true crime aficionado and host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast and the Crimes of Passion podcast, will be talking about different crimes. And I will also be covering, you know, interesting trials that may pop up and breaking true crime news. I'll hop on spotify green room and go from there so we're going to discuss or rather i'm going to talk to you about the case of suzanne morphew it's really interesting and then we will open it up for discussion so starting off that with suzanne morphew she was born suzanne mormon on april 30th 1971 She has a sister, Melinda, who described her as a gift for her 15th birthday, since they were born on the same day, a decade and a half apart. Melinda was delighted at the prospect of being a big sister, despite their mother's initial distress at having such a late pregnancy. Now, Suzanne's mother, Adrienne, passed away in 2013, did spend some of her career working as a receptionist in an optometrist office after her divorce. And though she loved her work, she spent most of her adult life caring for her four children. David, Andrew, or Andy, Melinda and Suzanne. Suzanne's father, Gene, passed away in late 2020. He owned a Gene's Root Beer in Anderson, Indiana, which is was a drive-in restaurant founded in 1964 that offers hot dogs, ice cream, its famous Spanish hot dog sauce and other carnival-type foods. Gene has been described by Melinda as an alcoholic who is often unavailable to his children, though Andy recalls memories of him hauling home Christmas trees from Michigan when they were children, eventually purchasing land to grow and sell himself during the holidays. So welcome. If you are new, we are discussing the disappearance and possible murder of Suzanne Morphew. And we just gave a brief history of Suzanne and her biography Now, Barry Morphew, her husband, was born to Roger and Shirley Morphew and grew up with his two sisters, Kelly and Marcy, in Alexandria, Indiana. As a child, Barry was an avid baseball player, and throughout his life, he has been a passionate outdoorsman who hunted and fished almost daily, becoming very familiar with the wildlife area that surrounded his home and beyond. Barry and Suzanne attended the same high school and university together, and their engagement was announced on January 5th, 1994. They were married at the Grace Baptist Church on August 5th, 1995, just kidding, on August 5th, 1994, and appeared to be a happy, devoted couple. They had two daughters together, Mallory and Macy, and in 2020 were living in a sprawling $1.7 million mansion in Colorado. Barry has shared love letters and cards exchanged between the two of them, depicting a loving, dedicated relationship that was still flourishing over 20 years of marriage, with Barry referring to Suzanne as the love of his life. Now we're going into Suzanne's disappearance. On May 10, 2020, at 5.46 p.m., police were notified of a missing persons report. A neighbor had reported Suzanne Morphew as missing after she never returned from a bike ride she'd been out on near uh, Maysville, Colorado. The next day, search crews were called in, setting out on what became a massive manhunt across the area she was believed to be in, near her Chaffee County home. Or Chaffee, sorry if I don't get that pronunciation right. The crews used drones and scent tracking dogs to attempt to locate the missing mother of two. And just let me know if you can hear me or if you can't. I'm using um, my AirPods, so I'm hoping you can hear me. Feel free to go into the discussion. And if you want to come up after we talk more, then let me know. In the coming days, Suzanne's family offered what became a $200,000 reward for her safe return. And her husband, Barry, would post a pleading video to Facebook asking for her safe return (laughs) and for anyone with information to please step forward he told Suzanne in that video that he loved her, he needed her, and their daughters needed her to come home. So I actually want to play that video for you guys. Um, You'll only be able to hear the audio for this, but I do want you to um, be able to hear it so that you have an understanding of like the type of person we're dealing with when we do talk about Barry and Suzanne. So let me pull this up. So just give me one second. Suzanne Morphew.
1: Yeah. So I just want to
2: play it. So here we go. And the case overall is really interesting because we see this kind of all the time, right? Where we have a person begging for the person's um, forgiveness or sorry, return (laughs) also forgiveness.
1: Suzanne, if anyone is
0: out there that can hear this, that has you, please we'll do whatever it takes to bring you back. We love you and we miss you. Your girls need you. No questions
2: asked. However much they want, I will do whatever it takes to get
0: you back. Honey, I love you. I want you back to
2: Okay, so that, sorry, I need to hang up these headphones. So that was Barry putting out a video regarding, you know, the disappearance of his wife and hoping that somebody out there, if they have Suzanne, returns her safely. They also have the FBI tip line number on there and says, you know what, this video was submitted courtesy of the Morphe family. And when you look at the video, Barry does look sincere in his request to... Um, Have Suzanne return home, and those who may have taken her return her back to her rightful place. And it's a really quick video, so you really don't glean a lot from it in terms of like, oh, he's guilty, you know, like how some people um, see that whenever they look at videos. So, basically, throughout the month of May 2020, police continued their investigation into Suzanne's disappearance the efforts escalated significantly after an undisclosed personal item of Suzanne's was found on May 15, 2020. And the really interesting thing about this investigation overall, as it kind of continues and suspicions and evidence start to grow, is that they really keep a lock and key on the things that they found. They don't even um, put it in the public record what items were um, found of Suzanne's. Uh, they, I believe, had the judge... Put an order in that said that they have to wait 10 days or five days after Barry's arraignment, which spoiler alert, sorry, after Barry's arraignment before they open any of those public records up or any of the court documents up to the public. So I found that really interesting. I haven't seen that done before. And I also haven't seen a really long um, affidavit like I have in this case, this affidavit's I think, 100 and something plus pages, which is really a lot for an investigation that's ongoing um, and one that they've already kind of started going towards the court. So anyways, police start interviewing neighbors because Suzanne, again, as I mentioned earlier, failed to return from a bike ride. And I found it interesting that his, her neighbor is the one who reported her missing. It wasn't even her husband. Um, and we're kind of going to go into that. But so they started... Um, interviewing neighbors, asking them, hey, if you guys have any um ring footage or any type of video footage between May 8th and May 12th, keep that and let us know. Um, and they started conducting searches of the Morphe home and surrounding area. Now keep in mind the Morphees again lived in a mansion, like a $1.7 million mansion in Colorado. So they likely had a lot of land surrounding them. So with Suzanne missing going on this bike ride. The neighbor reporting her missing, which, again, sus. Um, It was really interesting how I don't understand how Barry didn't become a suspect from day one. Barry is her husband. But on September 2nd, 2020, so this is fairly recent, while they were searching for Suzanne um, and the searches were still at their peak, news broke that a co-worker of Suzanne's husband, Barry, had occupied the hotel room where Barry had been staying at at the time of Suzanne's disappearance. Which was about 150 miles away in Broomfield, Colorado. Now the coworker said that when he took residence of the room that had previously been Barry's, he found it scattered with wet towels and reeking and it reeked of chlorine. Now that coworker was Jeff Puckett. And he said that he'd found mail that belonged to Barry, including property tax, which he gave to the FBI pretty immediately. And he told them, like, "Hey, I found it odd that Barry was keeping mail in his hotel room, especially you know one that was about property insurance. I like how he focused on the fact that the mail was the odd part, not the rags or the chlorine smell or bleachy smell that was there. But I will digress on that um but a week prior, Barry, I guess had come under suspicion as within true crime, anybody who follows it." pretty closely knows that the famous saying, the husband did it. Um, Obviously, the person closest to the victim is the first person that they suspect. Now, Barry decided to try and get ahead of the game and say publicly that he was innocent, and that he said he'd given, you know, 30 hours of interviews to the police. And Suzanne's brother was like, no, bro, you didn't. They said that he said he told reporters that Barry had basically refused to take a polygraph test when asked. Now, because of how often I do true crime and how often you know I cover it, I'm I don't really put a lot of stock into anybody refusing to take a polygraph test. A, they're inadmissible in court. They can be off for any number of reasons. If you're on any type of medication, if you're nervous, et cetera. You could easily fail or you could easily pass. We've had people who have committed murders um, that have passed polygraph tests, and we have people who did not commit murders who failed polygraph tests. So I don't believe that them, like him, refusing to take a polygraph test makes any difference whatsoever. But for those who put a lot of stake into them, I can understand why that would be like, oh, you are definitely suspicious because you're refusing to take a polygraph test. Um, But it's also why I would probably be seen as suspicious, too, because if I was ever accused of anything crazy, I would not be talking to the police at all, period. I would be getting a lawyer and using that route because too many people have been falsely accused (laughs) and pigeonholed into something. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Anyways, so... Um, I guess Barry did. Oh, yeah. Barry did some landscaping, right? Like he did some landscaping work. So Barry's coworker Jeff, went on again to say when he told the FBI and turned in all that stuff, he said, you know what else I found really strange is that there weren't any tools present related to the landscaping job that they were in town to do. And he never actually attended the job site during his stay there, despite being told that the job was urgent. And he thought, oh, This must be his alibi, which you know. When you look back at it, you're like, "Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense, right?" You have your missing wife, and you conveniently are 150 miles out of town in a hotel room, and you are supposed to be doing this really big job that you don't actually show up for. So it's not a very good alibi. He's not very good at covering his tracks in that respect. Um, so on September 28th. 2020, it was reported that the possible scent of human remains had been found during the search for Suzanne, though the sheriff's office said that no human remains had been found. This is common um, with scent dogs. They often will say, hey, there is something here, a scent of something, but they may not actually find any of the remains. And scent dogs aren't perfect either, so you know, it could have been in range, or it could have just been you know, Uh, sent that her passing by or him moving her etc but in october Barry put their home up for sale and he sold the home in march of 2021 and he had been granted guardianship of suzanne in order to sell the property so he was basically like hey i need to sell this property i can't afford this house anymore and now i need to get it off my hands and leave this area but throughout that fall Suzanne's siblings began to speak out against Barry, voicing their suspicions that he might have had something to do with Suzanne's disappearance and their belief that their sister wasn't actually a missing person, that she was a victim of foul play. Now, Suzanne's older brother, Andy, in particular, became very vocal about his suspicions. You'll see him all over the news, all over different uh, media reports, and he spoke to reporters about how he learned that his sister's marriage wasn't as solid as it seemed and that since her disappearance, he'd found out that there were marital issues he'd previously been unaware of, which I think you know with these types of situations, obviously uh that's kind of a duh that these individuals don't often have um good marriages, but they do put on a really great facade that hey, everything's great, and of course, you know between a husband and wife, you try to work out your problems without involving your family. So it's understandable, again, that, you know, her family wasn't aware of these marital issues. I don't know how often everybody, if you're engaged with somebody on a partner level, how often you bring other people outside of that relationship into it to kind of tell them your problems or what's going on. Um, But some people are really private and like to deal with it on their own. So that's not super suspicious to me, but it does. I can, again, understand how you know, he was a little suspicious of his brother-in-law, and then his move to quickly sell the house, and then the whole um, job site issue. But Barry, undeterred, still said he was innocent, and he said that the sheriff's office had botched the entire investigation from the start, saying that, you know what, Suzanne had been attacked by a mountain lion. And I just heard a podcast that did stats on um, attacks from, oh, it was, Junkie Um, attacks on mountain lion from mountain lions, bears, um, coyotes, etc. In Colorado, like doesn't happen really. Like I think since over the last hundred or three hundred years, like a mountain lion has killed maybe three people. So I don't believe those excuses either. Um, But Suzanne's brother Anthony, or sorry, Andy, shot back at the claim. He said, "You know what? It's really weird that Suzanne's bike was found and." It shows that it wasn't ridden on the ridge at all that she normally would drive or ride on. Um, it looked like it had been thrown over the ridge. And a predator doesn't do that. A robber doesn't do that. This is something else is what Andy told him. So he's basically indirectly but directly pointing the finger over um, to his brother-in-law saying, like, you're trying to set up this scene that, oh, she, you know, encountered a p- terrible fate on this ridge. but." Look at the placement of Rewrike. And this is the problem with people who don't listen to true crime is that they don't really know how to commit crimes. Um, Not that I would advocate that, I'm just saying. Now, Suzanne also had a sister, Melinda, and she would tell Inside Edition that Barry was a really dominant personality while Suzanne was really docile and passive and that Barry was a really great intimidator and he basically could get whatever he wanted she said that Suzanne would send her texts and she sent her some texts shortly before her disappearance saying that she was afraid and she was ready to tell her something that she'd been keeping quiet um and so that worried her but she wanted to give Suzanne the opportunity to tell her on her own time as opposed to pressing her and saying like hey tell me what's going on and maybe you know if they had had that conversation earlier then maybe you know, the circumstances would be different or maybe they wouldn't be. And that's kind of the terrible thing about this whole situation is that there's a lot of what it could have, should have in true crime. And with this particular case, it seems that Barry was up ahead of the jump than everybody else. So he had an opportunity to kind of squash things before they even, you know, got out. But May tw- on May 5th of this year, at around 9.15 a.m., Barry was arrested alone and without a struggle for the murder of Suzanne Morphew, despite her body still remaining uncovered. And you might have heard no body, no case, but they have successfully in the past tried and convicted people for murder without the body or the remains being recovered. And so it seems that that's what they're trying to do here with Barry Morphew. He was charged with first degree murder, tampering with evidence and attempting to influence a public servant. Now, these charges were laid against him after he had 400—oh, sorry. No, after the um, the sheriff's department had conducted 400 interviews and gotten over 1,400 tips. So on May 20th, just over a year of Suzanne disappearing and after she was reported missing, there were more charges that came against Barry, including tampering with a deceased human body, tampering with physical evidence, and possession of a dangerous weapon. The report continued that Barry would also be charged with forging public documents as it was discovered. Get this. Now, the 2020 election was like a huge (laughs) poop show, right? So he also submitted a ballot for the 2020 presidential election under Suzanne's name, which if you're not trying to get caught for the murder of your wife, then you probably shouldn't vote for her. And I don't know if this was like a misguided attempt to say like, oh hey, she's probably still alive. Look, she voted in the election. Um, but by then, you know, the cops were kind of on to him and were drilling down on him as a suspect. Now he's currently right now in a detention facility and he had a status conference in May. And they basically asked for the court to be delayed until August 9th of 2021. So once he has his court appearance, I'll definitely be getting on here to kind of give everybody an update. Um Barry, of course, continues to say he's innocent and in his wife's disappearance and his daughters appear to be standing by his side as well. They're supporting him through his arrest and all of the aftermath of that. Now you guys feel free to jump up on the um discussion if you'd like to talk about it. Um but yeah I I think this is <laughs> it's it's a really insane case. It really grabbed my attention pretty quickly because Barry did his best to proclaim his innocence but he also simultaneously like shot himself in the foot by doing all of these crazy things at the end and it just was really really strange that he would say oh i'm innocent but i also voted on behalf of my wife oh i'm innocent But I also have all of these strange towels and bleach in my hotel room and things. What up, DJ Joe? DJ Joe in the discussion saying hello. Now, I just want to give everybody kind of an update of kind of just to drill us back to what we're here for. So we do true crime convos every Tuesday with me. I will have a new case to discuss or an update on a previous case. But basically, if you are new to true crime or you are an aficionado like I am, then this is going to be a really fun discussion because rarely do you ever get the chance to really dive into a true crime topic and, you know, talk it through and just go through like these situations where you're like, dude, you're so dumb. Um, Thanks, Madeline. I'm glad you love true crime. And this is the show for you. Um, But yeah, I want to make it as interactive as possible. I think this case was really interesting to start with because it has so many obvious factors of the husband did it, but we are still missing Suzanne's remains. And again, the court system has decided to keep everything under lock and key in terms of what items they found, what led them to believe that um, Suzanne had met with foul play. There's a lot we don't know. So, once the uh, preliminary hearing happens on the 9th, and then I think 10 days after that, we have to wait before the documents are unsealed, then we'll have a better idea of what we can um, expect in terms of evidence. Now, I don't know if Barry will plan to plead out. By the looks of it, he plans to stick it out till the end that he's innocent. And I don't think that he will actually have that be successful on his behalf, which again, I don't understand. I guess that's the narcissistic personality piece of it is that they think that they can just get through, you know, these cases (laughs) and, uh, and uh, make it through and that they won't be prosecuted for their crimes or anything like that. Or they'll have this weird aha moment and finally convince everybody that they never did anything. Um, I think I have her on my list, um, Angela Green, but in case I don't, I will. Now, I recently was following the case to not to sidetrack too much off of Suzanne Morphew. Um, I will put her on the list, but um, I was also following the case of Mark Redline, and I think that that's going to be a really interesting um, case to discuss. So, yes, I have Angela Green on my list now. Thank you. Uh, Let's see. But feel free. If anybody wants to join up, don't be scared. Don't be shy. It's awesome. You can talk about your crime. Brian, what's up? So I had a lot of fun. I was exploring Green Room last week, and I just uh, happened upon this room where we talked about my my day job of HR and employer relations. (laughs) And it was um, quite a fun discussion. So let's see.
1: Every day That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Very true. Brian says that women love true crime. <laughs> women loving true crime is why it's rare for a wife to be caught with murder. You do it much slower and more meticulous. Guys are impatient and don't know how to cover their tracks like you true crime junkies. Absolutely accurate. A hundred percent agree. Um, which again, that's what I kind of tell my husband. I'm like, dude. I could totally get away with this if I wanted to trust me. Um, I would do it because I always ask him, like, how would you do it? And he tells me and I'm like, oh, no, no, no. It would totally catch you because you did this, this and this wrong. So, um, yeah, I'm very paranoid about stuff like that. I won't tell him how much like my life insurance is or anything like that. Like, I'm not going to ever tell you. Just know you were the beneficiary, but you don't know how much of the money you're getting. And you're not even 100% now that we have a kid. So it's not worth it to get rid of me. You see what I'm saying? um hopefully i'm not the only true crime person who does things like that but (laughs) if i am then i accept it and i'm willing to accept that um but yeah so that's the case of suzanne morphew highly recommend if you are a junkie like i am in terms of true crime that you really dive deep into the case we're not going to super like always get super involved in the cases we're going to kind of give a brief overview so that we can discuss it at the end and go over theories or you know. Sometimes we're going to deal with really frustrating cases where the investigations have been botched. In this case, given the amount of um, sealed documents that they have, like I said, this um, case, I think, has over a hundred and something, like 30 something pages um, for the affidavit alone. And that's like it's pretty unheard of. You know, like you don't really have that much. So Barry saying like, oh, I'm innocent. Mm doesn't speak a lot of truth to me, to be honest, because of how much evidence they have. But I'm interested for you guys to tell me kind of what your favorite cases are in terms of true crime. And I don't say favorite, like, oh, my God, I love this case. But one that kind of gets your brain going or that started your interest in true crime, or if you're new to true crime, what kind of led you here? Um, Brian's here. Hey, Brian. Hello, doing well how are
3: you i'm good you were making me think when you were talking about true crime the one that was really interesting for me I, i'm gonna forget the name exact name but the that movie 30 minutes or less where they tied the bond to the guy like netflix oh yeah that, the that, that pizza true gate. story yeah, the, mm-hmm. the the true story of that thing, and it, yeah. like, where that was just the beginning, and then it just goes off into this other entirely different insane crime story before finally like winding you back to that, and you're like, oh yeah, yes. I forgot this was even going on because this serial killer thing was going on on the side here. <laughs> and, yeah, it was that one. They just were got very me, like, busy <laughs> yeah.
2: No, I think those are really interesting too because, like you know, they try and focus you on one thing, like Pizzagate, you're like, Oh, wow, that's really insane. Like, why would this person go along with it? And you realize, like, how sadistic this person is that they convince them like, Oh, everything's gonna be fine. We're just gonna scare people. Don't worry about it. And then it's like, Oh, no, the bomb's actually real, and you're going to die. And it's, it was really, really devastating to see on Netflix, um, how they how you basically just gave up because you kind of were just like, what would you do? You know what I mean? Like, it was nice
3: to see the actual footage for that too. I, I was haunted by that for a while.
2: Yeah. It's, it's really disturbing. And I just like the utter like despondentness that he had, where he was just like, I, you can't, just can't do anything about it. And just sat there and it was over, you know? And I'm like, wow, that's insane. And then you go on through the history, like you said of the person involved, I forgot the individual's name. Um, but it's a, a lady. Let me see.
3: It was the lady and the man that they were both like the entire time they were like ratting on each other basically for all these different crimes and then they're yes. like, bodies and like, his They his owe
2: brother. me money. Exactly. It's like they owe me money. Let me see. Pizzagate. That's what it's called.
3: Wasn't Pizzagate that conspiracy thing? I think oh,
2: that yeah, was a that's a different right. thing. <laughs> the pizza what was it it was the real life 30 minutes
3: Netflix. or less and i know that uh, 30 minutes or less was the movie with uh jesse eisenberg and uh
1: shoot i can't remember the other guy that was in it minutes or less
2: here we go oh yes and how they tracked him too when they like traced
3: the because he he had all those appliances in his garage and so he was just taking out like all these random little pieces from like old school obscure like appliances to build that bomb and they had to like yes. place it through all that that whole thing was kind of fascinating too
2: it is really strange and i don't it's kind of like uh the whole ted kaczynski uh documentary that popped up you realize kind of how in depth it was for him and you're just like wow so he had some good points but i wouldn't necessarily bomb people over it you know wouldn't send you a pipe bomb because yeah, if you disagree with my a lot of
3: that's the thing <laughs> is like i i would i would be more inclined to agree with you if i wasn't reading this after like some bloody thing that you had done if you had exactly. just like posted this on facebook we all could have liked it and moved on exactly but instead they had to go make them so, yeah it's...
2: precisely Um, Okay, so it was Brian Wells. That's who I was thinking of. He was the guy who basically got himself in that whole plot about bank robbery, scavenging, or, like, he had a scavenger hunt to do. Um, I don't know. It was the Evil Genius. That was the name of the Netflix one. If you haven't seen that one, you should definitely watch it because it's insane.
3: Yeah, it starts with that, and then it just keeps going to, like, I I was— I. I was fascinated by that entire thing. I couldn't stop watching, but then I was like haunted afterwards because I like, just, just how long those people have been just doing those kind of things and nobody really noticed. And that poor guy just gets, it makes you not want to be a deli- pizza delivery guy. I remember in Phoenix, there was a uh, story of a guy who escaped from like Iraq during the war and mm-hmm. came over here because he wanted to be safe. And then he ended up getting like shot in Glendale for a pizza and it's just it's sad that like they they come here to like think that it's like a safe place but there's like monsters all over the place here too yep
2: that happened here too in dallas i covered a case where this guy had um came over from overseas i forgot from exactly where but he come over from overseas and he my doggie he's like mom, let me in um he had basically started working at a convenience store and going to school at the same time because he was trying to bring his family over, pay for school, et cetera. And he was living in like a really rundown area of Dallas but and working in a really rundown area of Dallas. Um, but everybody, like all the customers, liked him. And then just one day, this guy comes in because he's just on a rampage of deciding to rob stores. He decides um, that he's going to rob him and then he shoots him. But luckily... His case um, led to an individual um, being caught for that. Now, the guy actually survived the ordeal, um, and he was really, like, headstrong about wanting to stay in America and keep things going um, despite what happened to him. So I I think, like, you know, we have those really tragic stories of people who come over here and then are victims of crime, but then we also have people who are victims of crime and— you know, persevere through it. I mean, he had a ton of issues, um, coming back with like physical therapy, et cetera. Like he was shot in the face and he had a lot of damage to, um, his entire body, but really his face and, um, his brain, but he still, you know, like went through it. And now I think he's a motivational speaker about how to overcome things like that. Which I love how people
3: are able to actually so there's a guy on Clubhouse. I wish I could remember his name right now, but he he was living in the UK, I believe it was, and he mm-hmm. he basically by Right of being Arab, he got arrested for being a terrorist. Uh, I think it was the Ariana Grande bombing or some, some one of the oh, Manchester. terrorist attacks. Yeah. And he, he was not involved in it, but he got waterboarded, tortured, all sorts of stuff mm. for like weeks. He got, he basically got disappeared off the map for several weeks. And wow. when he came out of it, he became a hostage negotiator and he ended up writing a book about the experience and, and, and. Becoming like like a very prominent person and now works with now that he saw on the other end of how that stuff works, he now works with the government to like talk to these people instead of just having them go through what he went through. And it wow. was I don't know, it was a crazy story to see how that guy, like he was so positive. Like I got a chance to talk to him and he was I don't know, it was it was amazing just to understand that like he was he had made something so positive about such a negative experience.
2: Yeah, that's insane. But that's also really cool that, you know, he kind of now is able to influence situations like that from happening again and prevent them from happening again to say, like, hey, check your bias about what you think people are doing. And just because they happen to be a certain ethnicity or whatever, they're not necessarily, you know, terrorists. I think we should worry about that on our own home soil (laughs) before we worry about it
3: Definitely, and it is—it's like a strange comfort to know I'm, that there's somebody in there who does that, who understands it, basically.
2: Yeah, I think that's awesome. Honestly, kudos to him, but also terrible with that that's the experience he had to have in order to find something, you know, that he could do. um Does anybody else have any true crimes that are interesting to them? I'll tell you what I got started in um, true crime-wise, which was the I was 13 I believe (laughs) terrible age um but yeah I was 13 my mom gave me my first true crime book um which was called House of Secrets by Lowell Caulfield and it is about Eddie Lee Sexton and not a lot of people know about him which I'm so surprised they don't because it has like everything true crime related involved in it so basically Eddie Lee Sexton, the story or the case mostly happens um, in Ohio and then in Florida. But he basically had a uh, family that he tortured sexually and also um, physically. He and emotionally, of course, he did everything to them. So he basically um, had incestuous relationships with his um, children from literally every single child that came into his, um, that was born basically. So I think he had like six kids and all of them he abused and same thing with his wife. He forced her to abuse, um, their children as well. And so the product of those relationships were also additional children and he abused them too. But one of the children ended up getting into a relationship with an outsider, if you will. And, Eddie Lee like hated this guy. He thought he was just like a piece of crap, no good for his daughter, which to me Eddie is like the last person anybody should be taking advice from or we should care about anything he thinks about people being great or not great. But he basically was like, nope, you're terrible, but he allowed the relationship to continue. Now his daughter Pixie who was involved with this guy named Joel um basically was brainwashed so severely that she claims to have willfully engaged in a relationship with her father. Um, But I don't think that somebody who's been abused their entire life has the ability to say like, yes, I willingly did this because that's kind of all they know. Um, And they don't really have an opportunity to say like, oh, hey, I choose to do this when they were forced to do this since they were basically um, young kids. so. Long story short, they end up killing Joel because he is going to go back to Ohio after they ran away from like CPS. Eddie Lee packs up the family because CPS comes knocking on their door because the kids are being abused and moves the family down to Florida. They living on this campsite, Pixie abuses and murders her child and Joel's like, I got to go back home and I'm going to tell you know, the police about what's happening and where you guys are, which was um, not great. And they basically murdered him. And then they were caught. And the whole story kind of just unraveled from there. It's, I can't believe I was reading this A at 13, but I did. And I was just like, wow, people like this exist. I literally thought it was a fictional story. I had no idea that it was true. And when my mom was like, nope, that's actually what happened that's a true story. I was so engrossed in the idea that these people existed. And I wanted to know more about the psychology behind it and thinking like, what makes these people tick? Why are they doing this? Like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't fathom it whatsoever. So that's kind of what got me started in true crime. And then as I grew up, I decided to start a podcast and history has been made ever since.
3: I'm curious when you go through, like, do you like go through and, and search court records and try to like dig into things or how do you come across oh, crimes sure. now that you're like really like looking for for interesting stories? Like what what is it that like sparks you your interest at this point?
2: Yeah, so it's it's a little hard now because um, thankfully my shows are successful. So I have a really great team um behind me who help me with researching and finding topics um or cases that are really, you know, interesting. But for me, it's all about the the storytelling aspect to it. Like can I immerse the listener into a story about this situation? Um, so yeah, we try to find out as much as possible. So we will do FOIA requests if we have to. Um, those generally take a while. So we don't often go that route, but typically case records are available online. There's lots of editorial things that are out there. So it really just depends on the case, the notoriety of it. We do do sometimes find cases that are really interesting, but there's literally nothing out there. So we just have to make do with what we have. And sometimes, you know, those stories are a little bit shorter, but that doesn't mean they're less interesting. So that's been kind of hard is that you wish that there were more in, uh, more more information out there, but sometimes there just isn't and you have to just go with it. But when we can find um stories that are I keep saying stories and I don't mean it like, oh, this is a form of entertainment. I mean cases and things like that. But um I have a storytelling format for my show. So that's why I call them that. I'm not trying to be like flippant with that, just FYI. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how it works for us. I know other cases or other individuals who host their own shows as well. Um do-do FOIA requests like true crime bullshit. Um, he does an an incredible job of telling the story of Israel Keys, and, you know, even found new information to give to the FBI because of the research he's done. So I think that, I mean, it's incredible, the kind of stuff that, you know, you can find when you do your research in true crime.
3: It is interesting. I was just thinking of some of the, like, the McDonald's case, uh, the McMillions thing—that was probably one of the more fascinating stories I think that I've seen recently on on crime-related stuff. And it was—I don't know if you did you see McMillions on on HBO?
2: Um, I don't think so.
3: So basically what it is was McDonald's used to have that Monopoly game. Now uh, Safeway. Oh, yeah. it it. Mm-hmm. And for like like a decade, basically, they had that thing. And everybody in the country was playing this game and nobody ever won. The people that won were all set up from this guy who was the head of security for the company that had uh, distributed the pieces, like the, the special ones, because they were... Mm-hmm supposed to put him into the supply chain he just kind of sold them off to people and it follows like the whole story of how basically the fbi ended up getting involved and they were even trying to explain like why it is that that the fbi is getting involved in this game that people are playing like for a mcdonald's like it didn't seem like something was really on the line but in all reality i mean they showed all the different ways in which like their their that promotion kind of made them a ton of money, and people uh, they basically didn't follow the rules of the game, and they've been doing yeah. so. They committed fraud, and it was I don't know it was a fascinating story. Seeing every one of them when they got the money, how that there was all these strings attached, and they just hated everything about their lives from that point on because it just it, it just all that money came with strings basically, and there was yeah. there was just this guilt and all sorts of it just destroyed everybody, and it was crazy to watch that whole thing.
2: Isn't that how it always happens with people who win, like, millions of dollars anyway? Like, you always see those lottery stories where, like, the lottery ruined my life. Um, yeah, and uh, we have that case of Shakespeare. Um, I forgot his last name. But they it's the same thing. Like, he won the lottery, and then this lady completely took advantage of him, murdered him, buried him in his own backyard of his own house and continued to just like spend all of his money, et cetera. Um, And they didn't even, you know, notice he was dead because she had people impersonating him to say like, oh, this was um, here. Shy, are you asking about the McMillions? That was on HBO. But if you also want to hear about it too, there's a really awesome podcast called Swindled. They do like, or he does a lot of, crimes about like corporate America. Um, So you'll hear stuff about like Johnson and Johnson and how they basically like poisoned babies and got away with it. You'll hear about the Flint crisis and things like, like if you're interested in true crime, but from that perspective of not just, you know, individuals murdering people, but also how some companies are involved in that as well. So it's really interesting. And I think he actually covers the McMillions thing because Or, no, the the bottle cap one where, you remember, like, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think, they had a similar situation where if you open, like, a Sprite bottle, you would win, or a Coke bottle, you would win a certain amount of money or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. so it was really, really big, I think, in the Philippines, so Coca-Cola was trying to, like, build its brand in the Philippines or whatever. So they had this going. And I think there was this huge misprint of bottle caps that were winners. And so they, (laughs) they basically had like over maybe tens of thousands of people who won. And think about this, like in the Philippines where they're, you know, like $10 to us is nothing, but $10 to them is like thousands of pesos. Um, and I know this because my father-in-law lives there now. So it was really interesting to tie that all together. Um, scam goddess is awesome. Yes. Listen to them too. They're funny. Um, basically, so Coca-Cola, you know, they were trying to say like, oops, sorry, our mistake. You shouldn't have got it. But people were like, uh, no, you're going to pay us this money. And so they ended up doing a payout, but it was like tied to this terrible like same thing with the with the mcmillions issue like hey um this is (laughs) a string attached to it so they could only get a certain amount so i guess they were awarded like eighteen hundred dollars but then they only gave them like three hundred dollars or something like that so yeah they sued coca-cola and then coca-cola wasn't allowed to sell in that country anymore for like a really long time because of how badly they had botched that in the philippines and i'm not doing story justice whatsoever so i definitely recommend checking out swindled um a lot of people need to get past his voice but uh because he's very dry with his humor but it's a phenomenal podcast highly recommend
3: now i've got a list
2: yes i listen to a podcast all day basically so yes but yeah so if you're like into corporate america type of crimes and things like that like things that will make you mad at the man uh that's definitely one and just you it's insane to see what people can get away with and even individuals not even within the company so um so the podcast that we were talking about today were swindled i'll list them in the chat swindled and scam goddess now scam goddess is um more of like a humory type of podcast right i think i've only listened to a few episodes but swindled is more serious does a storytelling type of show as well um and like i said he has dry humor because he inserts a lot of comments that may get lost to some people but it's actually uh, well received nothing's a joke in there (laughs) because you're just like yeah um yeah so yes scam goddess and swindled so far are the ones that we're doing but you guys just like Madeline gave me a case if you guys have things you're interested in talking about feel free like yes we talked about Suzanne Morphew but there are other cases out there too that you could talk about I could talk about till I'm blue in the face about true crime seriously all the time um but yeah and even podcasting etc I love it all so I'm happy to talk about it and I'm glad you joined Brian made this made this easier for me it's my first official show
3: <laughs> no problem i i realized <laughs> you needed need another voice up here to bounce things off of so it's like all right okay guys I, I do love to hear about crimes all the time a lot of them like i'm by the border so we get a lot of the border crime kind of stuff and it's all cartel related and and drug related it's a whole other I'm so scared i'm
2: so yeah, scared it's a whole to other, any of, those... of it all <laughs> what yeah, border exactly. are you at
3: by mexico so yeah by the uh, arizona mexico border basically
2: ooh yeah no I'm too scared to do any type of cartel crimes. I, it's just like my paranoia. I'm like, there's no way. Because I don't want to be like targeted. Yeah, they, they hang <laughs> like people from like the something. highway
3: and things like that. They do some crazy stuff to make a point. I don't do it.
2: Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> like, nope, I'll watch Narcos and that's about it. No, thank you. But, no, yeah, that's that's definitely not my gig um, on any of those.
3: It's funny because it's a small town. Like, it's a bunch of small towns around here. So, nothing really newsworthy happens. But every, like, blue moon, they'll open mm-hmm. up a storage unit or something. And just someone's hanging in there with, like, <gasps> snitch put across them and things. like, Oh, yeah, now I remember we're by the border. I forget this. Until something oh like gosh. that happens. And you're very blatantly aware.
2: Dude, we had something like that happen here near Dallas. Um, there was an attorney. For one of the cartels um he got shot down in the middle of one of the richest cities in dallas um i think he was in lake highlands or something but yeah he uh was just at a shopping mall like they, we have a lot of like outdoor shopping malls especially like kind of in the more affluent areas And he was just there with his wife and his kids and he was already kind of fearful so he I don't know why he would think, I guess because of the area, he was like, there's no way they would do this here. Um, But this case was like unsolved for a while because they had no idea like what the connection was. Basically, he parks his car, his wife gets out, and then this car just like swoops in, does their deed, and then swoops out. It's like very quick, how you see it in the movies. And again, this happens in a very affluent area where they're not used to hearing you know, like gunshots or anything like that, like any type of crime happening there is more like, oh, hey, there was a robbery or something like that, like very obscure things that don't really happen um, in more diversified neighborhoods, <laughs> I would say, like, I'm used to hearing crazy things, but, you know, they are not, so. Yeah, it was it was it was crazy. Well, kind of
3: on that note, do you ever get like contacted by any of the people from the case? I mean, you covered a lot of cases at this point in videos yes. and podcasts and things. And so, like, do, do yep. they contact you angrily or or in a good way? Like, how does that work?
2: Yeah, I've had both. I've had people. Um, I recently covered a case on Melissa Lucio. She is on Texas death row right now. Um, she was convicted of murdering her. Um, daughter who by the looks of it and the case that was presented um was severely abused by her Um, she had confessed in a police interview but a lot of people um, don't believe that her confession should have been admitted because a lot of it was leading questions and a lot of it was provoking like hey didn't you do this or show me how you hit her or show me how you did this and um you know she was just in a really precarious position to do that and there's a net or an Amazon video out there on Prime called The State of Texas versus Melissa Lucio that basically counter or sorry contradicts her um the evidence in the case with what she knows so I actually reached out to her family and her sisters who are really big advocates for her and wanting to see her released or to get her a new trial because I wanted to give them the opportunity to tell me her story like tell me about her childhood. I want to hear it from the source because everything that's out there is based off of what was in the trial and what was submitted as evidence. And that's all very one-sided towards the state. Her defense attorney, um, they weren't really happy with her defense. And so they um, were like, don't look at anything related to the defense because it was terrible. They did a bad job for her. That's why she was convicted and that's why she got death. So I you know, worked with the family, sent them a lot of questions, the sisters answered me um and I basically told both sides of the story. Like I told what the um case was and then I said what the sisters said and they were so mad that I included what the um prosecution said and what the uh, media said, but I, you know, prefaced it with this is basically what I was doing. Like this is one side and then here's the family side. Um but yeah, they were They were really angry with me for some reason about that, and um, I explained to the sister what I did, and I was like, I'm not sure if you heard the episode or not, or if you just, like, listened to parts of it, you know, because they didn't really know what a podcast was or anything like that, and uh, they didn't really want to give a lot of information about her crime or possible crime, and they didn't want to give any information about why they believe she um should get a new trial because they were currently working on her appeals. So they weren't giving us a lot of information that we could really, you know, like say, oh, hey, this. And then the documentary comes out. And so I plan to have the um filmmaker on the show so that we can talk about it and hopefully, you know, get her to listen to the episode and offer some feedback on that. Because I really it's a really interesting case. You could see it both ways because you could say, like, hey, listen, who who just confesses to abusing their child and killing them and then of course when they are given the consequence of death of course they're going to take it back and say no i didn't do it so yeah i think it'll be an interesting conversation to have for sure i'm not convinced either way of her guilt or innocence um so i think that there needs to be um, some more work done and definitely i would not have um said that she was guilty if i had looked at the evidence in the case. Um so, yeah, I would have definitely given a not guilty verdict for sure, um, so I definitely think she should get a new trial, and what the result of that is is not up to me
3: that's fascinating you're right it's it is kind of sad how the justice system works, like you never really know how many of these cases slip through the cracks that aren't like as black as and white as they they're meant to they're laid out to be basically yeah. in the media
2: yeah, and it's all one sided for the most part. I mean, you may have people who Believe in their innocence, but those articles and cases aren't viewed as much as the ones that offer the details of what the crime was and what they did. Because people want to believe the worst, right? They want to believe, like, of course you did this to your child, because that's the only explanation that can exist of why they had these broken bones or why they um, had these bruises. And there's this theory, especially on Melissa's case, that she's protecting one of her children um, who was, I don't think a part of the documentary. I can't remember. I have to basically rewatch it, but um, she was protecting one of her children because that child was um, aggressive with the other kids and especially towards um, the baby. So it, it, it's interesting, you know, but I think now they, they're trying to say like, yeah, she did cover for her kid. It was a, Big mistake. She shouldn't lose her life for it.
3: Yeah, I could definitely see that. That's a valid, like, I yeah. could see well there. That. That's something that a mother would definitely do.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it makes without, sense.
3: Yeah, without question.
2: Yeah, it makes sense. And I also had the good side. You know, I've had people who I've covered the, you know, the cases of either their relative or their friend or, um, you know, somebody that they knew and they've reached out and thanked us for you know, bringing awareness to the case and things like that. Um, But it is weird. Like, we don't ever reach out to the family. Like, reaching out to Melissa's family was only done because I just wanted to see, you know, if they were open to sharing their side. If they weren't, I'm like, okay, fine, I'm still going to tell the story. But if they were, then I definitely want to have their perspective in it. Um, But, yeah, we don't often do that because... You just don't want to re traumatize people. You don't want to continue to go back and say, Hey, tell me all the details about how this, you know, the worst day of your life affected you. I'm sure it was terrible. Like, you just don't, you don't do that. Um, And you have, I mean, you have people that do do that. Um, You have like The Vanished, but those people are contacting Marissa, who's the host of The Vanished, to say, Hey, please cover my loved one who's missing. And she's actually had people like um, a recent case where, The husband refused to talk to the police and refused to give an interview to the police, but did talk to Marissa and was all over the place with, like, what happened to his wife, what was going on. And the police used that information to basically arrest him and charge her um, or consider him a person of interest in his wife's disappearance. So I think that's
3: crazy. That is kind of crazy. And that's actually, that's the kind of stuff as to why I think that what you do is important because having that, that third party perspective and and having another voice going into that conversation is always necessary because it's the, the police can make mistakes. The courts can make mistakes. People make mistakes all the time. It's so like on any end, you never know where it's going to land on any of these cases as to what really actually happened.
2: Absolutely. It's insane. Um, marissa's had a lot of luck with that actually like there's people that because of how much work she does with law enforcement and with like families there are people who have been on her show who were reported missing been missing for years like decades and then they'll hear their own story on her show or they heard this only one person i know of they heard their story on her show reached out and were like hey i'm fine She contacted law enforcement today, like, hey, this person contacted me to tell me they're okay, but they didn't want their family to know. Like, they didn't want their family to be contacted about them. And they basically were just like, hey, this person contacted us. They're doing well, and that's all the information that we can give you. So there's some people who just wanted to leave, you know, and and did that, but then, you know, heard their story because their family's like, hey, what happened? Or where did this person go? So. You know, you don't ever understand the circumstances of why people decide to do things like that. Um, But it's happened in several cases where people have gone missing, especially like an 18-year-old girl went missing, I think, sometime in 2019 or 2020. She was found and she was like, hey, I'm 18. I don't want to go back home and I don't have to. And so she didn't and her family had to be okay with it, you know, and not having contact with her. So.
3: That's kind of crazy to think about that. I have to grow up. I, I, I'm lucky that I grew up with a family that I did because I have, I've known some friends that have had some crazy situations with their parents. And then as like an adult now, I go and look at all those things with like a whole other perspective too, because sometimes yeah. it's, you were, I don't know, sometimes they were in the right and sometimes you were in the wrong when you really see the, the context of what was going on. And yeah, I, I this is why I don't work in law enforcement or any of that stuff. I like working in media and being able to, to just be able to to witness everything versus having my decision mean anything because honestly, like at any given moment when you're just popping up there and seeing all this stuff going on, like you never know really what what the reality is. Like two people come with two totally different stories. And oh for sure. Yeah, it's it's just insane.
2: Yep. And I mean, yeah, you just have you know, it's it's all a weird Situation to begin with, and you're just like, okay, like you want to. I for me, I'd want to know more. Like, I'm just a naturally curious person, which is why I do what I do for my day job, like employee relations, because I just want to know the details. I'm like, hey, why do you not want to come back to your family? Like, what happened? Um, and you know, I'm used to invading privacy because of what I do, right? Like, I have to invade people's privacy in order to tell these stories and share these cases. And so I want to just always know, and I have to realize like, you know what, sometimes you're just not going to get those answers, which is often why I don't like unsolved cases because I'd like to have an ending. Like I like to have finality to things. Um, so I am not often into unsolved anything. It's really annoying for me.
3: Yeah, I can see that. I'm a, I'm a bit of a completionist too. That's that's why I, a lot of the news I try to avoid because I just, I'd rather look at it later on and figure out like when I know everything that's gone on because I mean once you get the story right up front, it's just so hard to like I mean there are some things that are pretty obvious. I've seen some things that that from the video it's it's really hard to like make a case for somebody. But but there are a lot of times you're just like, dude, I don't I mean there's just so much coming through here. I I couldn't tell you one way or another how I feel about this until this comes through court and I can everything settles down and I can see it basically.
2: Yep, exactly. Well, I am good on the conversation in terms of the stories that I have to share or have shared today. Thank you guys so much again for joining me for Green Room and listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you join me on the app.